But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just as Psalm 68 says that when Christ ascended on high, he led host He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But he also had descended into the lower regions. That is to say that he descended into the earth. This is, again, Paul elaborating on Psalm 68 as it speaks of the ascension of Christ. Now, Christ, who descended from on high, is also the one who has now ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now Paul focuses on that question, as you saw in verse 7, that he has given each of us gifts uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift. What are these gifts that Christ has given to his church? Verse 11 begins to tell us, and so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's Word. Let us go before Him in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that You would illuminate this portion of Your Word as we consider its relevance to the life and doctrine of Your church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a particular uh, aspect of the faith that um, perhaps we don't hear uh, preached often enough. Many times we'll hear sermons throughout the year preached on the the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and and rightly so. That is not to diminish that. But all this has a particular uh, uh, trajectory as we read leading up to uh, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 that Christ, having risen from the dead, has in fact ascended on high. Uh, The ascension of Christ is important. If you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, for instance, uh, uh, one of the the confessional standards of of our our Reformed brothers uh, and sisters in the United Reformed churches, a great amount of Uh, of detail is given in the Heidelberg Catechism to the question of Christ's ascension. And rightfully so. Now that Christ has ascended on high, He has entered in to the heavenly courts. He has taken His seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1 begins by telling us this very thing that Christ's reign has already begun began at his ascension, the very first thing he did is the ascended Savior, mediator, as he lavished his spirit on his church. Christ was given a kingdom in, in fulfillment of all the promises that were seen in the Old Testament, the promise that uh, through Eve, uh, that through one of her children would come an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, that to Abraham given a promise that there would be one who would possess the gates of his enemies, that kings would come from him. To David, 
That there would be one who descends from His line who would be given a throne forever and ever and ever. The great proclamation of the Old Testament is the arrival of the kingdom of God and the New Testament begins by proclaiming that that kingdom has a king and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom He rules is a kingdom of grace. As we have seen over the past several months, that kingdom of grace is manifested on earth here not in a particular nation state, but it's found in the church. This is the place where Christ rules and reigns as Redeemer. Think of the anticipation we find in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. What we find is that the church visibly manifested is the kingdom of Christ on earth. It's something that we've gone to great lengths over the past few months to, uh, to, to fill in, but now we need to think through one particular feature of Christ's kingdom. That just as a kingdom has a king, just as a kingdom has laws, so also a kingdom has an administration, it has officers in the kingdom. And that is what we mean by church office. Christ has established offices in his church for the building up of the people of God, for their safety and well-being and care. To put it another way, Christ has appointed men to serve in the church. And what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4 is what we might call the ascension gifts that Christ has given. If you notice the litany of gifts that are given here in chapter 4, looking uh, at verse 11, what are they? It's a ministry of the Word. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are Christ's gift to His pilgrim church. What I'd like us to think about uh, this evening is the nature of church office. To see that this is tethered to an outworking of a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God under the new covenant. That this is what the kingdom of Christ looks like as we await the return of our Savior. Two particular features I'd like us to consider this evening. First, I'd like us to consider um, the nature of office, but maybe in, in some ways present what we might call a taxonomy of church office. Think through some of these particular features. And then, uh, secondly, I'd like us to consider uh, what we might call the ordinary and perpetual offices uh, that we see in the church today. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, elaborate what I mean by that uh, in a few moments. But first, we need to consider uh, the, the, a basic taxonomy of church office. Um, if we could put it in kind of broad brush, broad brush strokes, we can say that there are two uh, broadly speaking types of office. There's the general office and what we might call the special office. I think it'd be very easy to simply jump into talking about the nature of church office and begin talking about the pastor, the elders, or the deacons. But I think we'd be remiss if we jump over the fact that everybody in Christ's kingdom holds a specific 
office. There is no such thing as an insignificant Christian in the kingdom of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us this when Peter, citing the book of Leviticus, says this to Christ's church, to man, woman, child, young, old, married, single, widowed, everyone who puts their hope in Christ, we find that this is true, that you are a chosen race, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is something that we uh, might commonly refer to as the priesthood of all believers. This is, some, uh, this is a benefit that's common to everyone who puts their hope in Christ, no matter how old or how young. That if you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, then the smallest child who trusts in Christ holds the same privileges as the pastor of the largest megachurch. Because we do not come before the Lord's throne on our own merits. We come on the basis of His mercy and grace. And so all are called to come forth. It's so fascinating that no individual in the New Testament apart from Christ is ever referred to as a priest singular. I am not your priest. I am not your mediator. There is but one high priest. There is but one mediator. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as we heard um, just a moment ago from 1 Peter 2, Paul addresses the whole body of Christ and says, you are a royal priesthood. One who, by the work of Christ, our high priest, has been granted the great privilege to lift up sacrifices of thanksgiving and prayer, to have the great privilege to approach the mercy seat whenever you so please. Think of what a great contrast this is under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, who could approach the Holy of Holies? Who could approach the throne of God in the inner sanctum? It is but one man, one day, once a year. And that's it. And even then, he's told, keep your distance. Approach with fear and trembling. Yet now that Christ has ascended on high, the book of Hebrews tells us, we as the people of God are beckoned to come boldly before the throne of grace. Every man, woman, and child. This is the great privilege that each and every one of us have in here. A great benefit under the new covenant far outstrips and supersedes anything that the old covenant had. This is why we speak of the covenant under Moses as being given in but types and shadows. It just gives us a vague sketch of the great glories that are given to us through the work of Christ. Now we as the church are constituted a nation of priests. 
priests called to intercede and pray on behalf of the church and our um, friends and family members who do not know Christ. And yet there's not just uh, we who are called priests. We are, now all, we are also called a royal priesthood. There's a real dignity here. We have been adopted into God's family. Christ is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 2 as our elder brother. It's a great privilege, one that we cannot undermine. This here speaks of the great privilege, uh, not just of men, the great privilege of women and children. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we mean by the general office. Everyone here is a church officer who professes faith in Christ. And yet, though we speak of a general office of believer, Scripture also speaks of special offices given to care for the needs of this royal priesthood. Individuals who have been gifted and set apart and appointed for the building up of the people of God. Though we all have equal access to the throne of grace, nevertheless, Christ, according to His measure of gifts as He saw fit, Hebrews 4.7, or 4.11, we see that Christ distributes gifts uh, to his church for their encouragement. Those gifts, you know, we think of gifts, uh, you know, we typically think of birthday gifts, and yet the, the gifts that Christ gives his church is not consistent of a birthday card or a, or a water gun or a, a, a pony. Rather, what he gives are word based gifts. Men appointed and set apart for the work of the ministry. This is what we mean by a special office, particular individuals who've been set apart for the work of the ministry. And of course, again, uh, dealing with this taxonomy, we can now break up the special office. Again, thinking big, big scheme, general office, special office. Now we're focusing on special office. In special office, here's our taxonomy. We can uh, d uh, distinguish among the special office two different types of officers. Extraordinary offices and ordinary offices. What do I mean by that? The first we could call extraordinary and temporary. Those are the offices of the apostles and the prophets. Um, if you read Acts chapter 1, Verses 21 and 22, or 1 John chapter 1, and other passages like this, we find that um, Christ set apart apostles for himself. What was an apostle? One who's been sent by Christ, who bore witness to his earthly ministry before he ascended on high. That's the qualification. Uh, in some respects, you have to we have to recognize that the office of the apostle is therefore limited in its scope. Uh, I, I, what's, what's fascinating in the New Testament is you don't see the apostles setting apart new apostles. It's a distinct office, an important office, one that becomes the bedground, the bedrock for the New Testament. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The New Testament apostles and prophets were uh, giving the groundwork for providing us with Christ's commands that were committed to Holy Scripture. And yet that particular office passed away. 
as the apostles died off, that is a, a, an office that ceased to function. That's why we call it it's extraordinary, it's special. They're given particular special gifts, working miracles, and, and the various things that we read about in Acts. And yet, as, for instance, Paul goes planting new churches, what does he see established as these pl- churches are planted? The establishment of what we would call a, a, an ordinary office. Pastors, elders, and deacons. And that is what we mean coming to uh, kind of zoning in, zooming in on this particular facet we see. If, pro- if apostles and prophets no longer in existence today, this, the ordinary and perpetual offices are those offices that continue now uh, until Christ's return. Uh, and what we see when we look at the New Testament is that there are, in fact, three ordinary and perpetual offices. The minister, the elder, and the deacon. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a Russian nesting doll. Are you all familiar with what I'm talking about? I actually have one sitting in my office. I thought of bringing it tonight. I just forgot it. Um, um, Russian nesting dolls were one of those kind of... Um, it might have something that looks like an owl, and then you kind of unscrew it in the middle, and you open it up, and there's a there's a smaller owl inside, and then you open it up, and there's another uh, owl inside. There, I remember seeing a Russian nesting doll once of uh, the different uh, kind of Soviet uh, presidents, you know, that there were uh, with the USSR. You've seen a, a variety of things. Well, I think it might be helpful to think of church office in uh, as, as something like that. That these offices have some amount of overlap. What we see here in Ephesians chapter 4 is uh, um, Peter's, uh, I'm sorry, Paul's focus is on uh, uh, those ministers of the word. Um, those word based ministries, as he describes, the pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Um, and in our own denomination, if you look at our book of church order, we, we kind of will distinguish these to some respect. I think every pastor is required to fulfill all three of those duties. He has to be a minister of the word. There's a, there's a teaching function that he has to fulfill. Uh, there's the pastoral aspect. Every pastor is called to shepherd the flock and to pray for them and to be a watchman. Uh, and uh, every pastor, every minister is also called to be an evangelist. But even in Christ's church, the, uh, what we see, uh, the way in which our own denomination kind of tries to order this is that there's some men who have distinct giftings and callings where uh, they kind of just focus on one facet. So for instance, uh, seminary professors are teachers. They're ordained as ministers of the word, even though they're not necessarily a pastor of a local congregation. Or you may have an individual who has been set apart and called as an evangelist uh, to help plant a new church, who once that church is particularized, rather than him pastoring that church, he'll move on and plant uh, another church, and so on and so forth. Um, but what we see here, at the least, when we think of the minister, the minister has uh, a number of functions that he is required to do. He is described according to a host of different uh, terms in the New Testament that designate the particular duties. As a bishop, there is, uh, uh, um, we don't use the term bishop um, much in our denomination because it kind of gives uh, maybe certain uh, uh, meanings that, that we don't mean to attribute to it, but there's the idea of administration. Uh, when he's designated as a pastor, his duty is that of shepherding and care. 
As a teacher, his job is to proclaim the word. As a minister, he is one who is given uh, the great duty to administer uh, the sacraments. Uh, As a presbyter, he is called to partake not just in the life of the congregation, but also the life of the regional church. And as an ambassador, it is his duty, according to 2 Corinthians 5, to proclaim reconciliation in Christ and repentance and faith in his name. Sometimes he's referred to as a watchman, meaning that his task is uh, to pray and be on the lookout for wolves to ensure that the flock are kept safe. We see the qualifications for the minister in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. I'm not going to read those. I'd encourage you to read them. I think what is worth noting, when you look at those qualifications, uh, I think it is so different from uh, the very things that we tend to think if we are looking for um, a pastor. Uh, you know, you go to a, a, a particular church, Yes, why somebody is there, they go, oh, well, he's a great teacher. He's a dynamic speaker. You know, fill in the blank, things like that. And, uh, but when you look at the, uh, the list of requirements for a minister or an elder, being apt to teach is only one of those qualifications. Um, far more important is his character and integrity. The fact that Paul spends so much time saying, this is what you should be looking for, uh, I think reminds us how easy it is for us to be led astray uh, by trying to follow different qualifications as not found in Scripture. Integrity matters because it is uh, the pastor who is to set the tenor and the tone for the congregation. He is the one who models Christ-likeness. And though we are all sinners... He is held to a high degree of accountability because the children will look up to that pastor. If that pastor is there for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, here is the one who models what it looks like to follow Christ. And that's why it's such a high obligation for a search committee in looking for a pastor or a potential candidate to have to vet these things when it's very difficult. You know, you can, uh, if I could just speak plainly, there's a little frustration that I have even with the way in which we, we uh, call ministers. Spend so much time uh, making sure they're vetted theologically, and I think that's very important. I actually think we should do it more rigorously, not less. Uh, and yet when it comes to qualifications and character, how, how do you measure that? You know, it's something that has to take, uh, that has to be taken into account over uh, something that's more than simply two or three Zoom conference calls or phone calls. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, but these are things that we have to keep in mind when we are looking for officers. Not just for that of minister, but also for that of an elder. If the minister is a, uh, a minister of word and sacrament, the elder, his particular duties and his office regards a ministry of rule. Again, I think what's really fascinating is that in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, like I said, no particular individual is referred to as a priest apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, what we see that is that there are some old covenant foundations that the, 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 part of the functions of the priesthood, when you read the Old Testament, what is it that the priests are to do apart from offering sacrifices? They are to instruct people in the Word of God. That is their duty. 
And it seems that there has been something of a transformation now under the new covenant where now that task has been given to the pastor, to the minister to do. There is an instructive aspect to this. And yet for the elder, though, he is also encouraged to teach. It's not required of an elder that he teach. That particular office is a ministry of rule. Uh, we find this, uh, these foundations in the Old Covenant. Again, uh, one way to help see the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is, uh, Gerdes Voss would use this particular description. It's like the, the progress of an acorn flourishing into an oak tree. Uh, under the Old Covenant, we see things in their seed form, and then they begin to blossom and bloom under the New Covenant. And in Numbers chapter 11, um, Moses is confronted as he's told, you're not able to do all of this by yourself. What is it that Moses is not able to do by himself? Well, Moses having to spend every day listening to everybody's problems. Here is Moses having to deal with um, disputes among families, dealing with what we might, you know, perhaps even like marital counseling issues, things like that. Um, governance of uh, the, the, the people of God under the Old Covenant. And Moses' father-in-law says, you, you can't do this on your own. You need to appoint elders who can help in this particular function. And so there is a distribution that takes place that the elders are called alongside to help in the governance and oversight of the church. And this is where I think, again, the... Uh, um, the Russian nesting doll has a certain helpful analogy. As a minister, my job is to help rule and govern alongside the elders. But it's not that I am kind of a mini-dictator and the elders are my minions. As if I'm kind of walking around going, dance puppets, dance. Uh, at a session meeting. You attend a session meeting, you'll know that that is not true. We are called to join. There's what we call a parity of eldership. I am an elder, and a minister. My job is to, uh, to preach the word and administer the sacraments. It's something that the elders are not able to do. Uh, and so there are certain duties that I have that an elder cannot do, but then there are certain elders that I have that are the same that elders have as well. And before, to, and again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm diminishing the office of an elder, because actually I think the, elder is, the office of elder is the most important office in our denomination, in our church. I want you to think about it, put it, put it like this. Can a church, theoretically, exist without a pastor? Yes. Case in point, year and a half you know, prior to November 2020. This is a church without a pastor. You're perfectly able to exist and continue on. Can a church exist without deacons? Yes. It's going to be difficult. The elders have a lot more uh, duties that they have to fulfill as the elders, again, like that Russian nesting doll, would have to take to themselves the work of the diaconate. It could come, become very exhausting. But can a church exist without elders? No. Elders are really, in, in many ways, the, the bedrock. They're kind of the unseen man behind uh, the curtain, as are the deacons. Uh, again, this is one, one of the reasons why Paul will get at Sometimes the guys who get the most face times, the most screen time, are the, the, the least important guy, uh, person in the church. It's the unseen folks uh, that are so critical to the body of Christ. 
We're not here to designate who is the most important person in the church and who is the least important. That is not the point of Ephesians chapter 4. Rather, the point is Christ is the most important one. And what has He done now that He's ascended on high? He has distributed different gifts among men to know that we all need one another, that we might all grow up into maturity and the unity of the faith through knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if the minister and the elder are concerned with what you might call an office of rule and tending to the spiritual needs of the congregation, uh, the office of deacon reminds us uh, that Christ doesn't only care about our souls. He cares about our bodies as well. And the office of deacon is actually a, uh, a new office. It's not something that has its necessary particular roots in the Old Covenant. We find rather in Acts chapter 6, that the, the minister has is, needs to devote his time to doing what? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And to help with that, we have individuals who are called for the task of attending to the physical and material well-being and the welfare of the people of God. Such is the role of the diaconate. Something that has so central a role and so central a purpose that Paul devotes two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians to talking about the office of the diaconate. It's Paul's having to go from church to church taking up a diaconal collection because there's a famine that has devastated the church in Jerusalem. And so what we see here, we could spend um, a lot more time talking about this, but I think it, it would just be helpful to have just a, a bird's eye picture uh, to remind us this is in fact Christ's kingdom. That Christ's kingdom has an actual administration according to the rules and standards of Scripture. That every person here is an officer. Every person here is a member of the body of Christ with great, the great benefit and privilege of approaching the throne of God 24-7. God doesn't hold office hours three days a week. You can now approach the Lord whenever you want. And yet this isn't a fully what we would call egalitarian society. There are, in fact, offices, special offices put in place in perpetuity that are very ordinary. I don't have magic healing powers in my hands. Uh, Yet, we've been given the great privilege of tending to the needs together, not as an individual where I I get to rule as a a mini-pope, as a mini-dictator, but what we have is an administration of officers who rule together jointly uh, to ensure the well-being and spiritual and physical safety of the people of God to remind us that we have a king who rules over all and who cares for us in both body and soul. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that as we consider the great gifts you have given your people, uh, that we would remember our elders and our deacons uh, as you have given them to us to to help us in our care of for one another. We do pray that as we sit under your word, you would enable us to grow in maturity of the faith, uh, that we might continue to love one another, and so look forward to that day when our faith will be made sight, and we will see our Savior face to face. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.